0: The Dave Berta Podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. To hear more amazing Alberta-made podcasts, visit albertapodcastnetwork.com.
1: I'm Natalie Pond.
0: I'm Justin Archer.
2: And I'm Dave Cornway. And you're listening to the Dave Berta Podcast. We're recording this episode on Sunday, October 6th, 2019, and I am thrilled to be joined by our producer, Adam Rosenhart. Hi. Adam, And our two special guests. Natalie Pawn is a chartered professional accountant and a conservative activist in Edmonton. Most recently, she was on the interim board of the United Conservative Party of Canada. And Justin Archer is a partner at Berlin Communications in Edmonton and a professional communications strategist. Justin and I worked together in our first political jobs back in the mid-2000s when we were working for the opposition Alberta Liberal Party. Yep. So welcome it's to the podcast, guys. Who are they?
1: <laughs> it's notable
0: that neither of you really works in politics anymore.
2: <laughs> they, they were a thing. There used to be a party called the Liberal Party.
0: <laughs> be nice. Be nice.
2: <laughs> so wel- welcome on to the podcast, guys. I'm gl- really glad that you could join us. Uh, we got we have no shortage of stuff to talk about. We are in the midst of a federal election right now. Um, And, uh, and yeah, there's a lot going on. Um, So Canadians go to the polls on October 21st. We're more than midway through the federal election. Now, I believe Um, a number of things have happened since we have a number of things coming up this week. The debate on, I think October 7th is the English debate. And then there's another French debate after that. So, I'm just going to throw it out to you guys, Natalie and Justin. Uh, What is this election about? Go ahead, Natalie. It's
1: really been about nothing. It's been the most unimpressive election about nothing I've ever seen. It's been an outrage election. It's been about gotcha politics and who has the best oppo. There hasn't been a lot of substantial policy coming from any of the campaigns. And we've been mostly focusing on uh, non-relevant scandals that we're just trying to use to discredit the other teams. Like... um, You know, Andrew Scheer's citizenship or Justin Trudeau's blackface and brownface. All of these things are relevant things to talk about, but at the end of the day, aren't informing Canadians of what the political parties that are up for election would possibly do as the government.
3: I I suspect, though, that there probably is a lot of policy that's being announced and being talked about. We're just not really hearing because you know, you open up the newspaper in the morning or you, or you listen to the news in the evening and you see the scandal of the day or the the personality politics story of the day rather than the, the policy announcement of the day. But I was actually trying to think about when I was driving over here, what what are some uh, some actual policy announcements that I can think of? And I'm not sure I can think of a single one that the Liberals have done. I, I've heard, uh, I can think of a couple of that uh, Jagmeet Singh, he's talked about uh, cleaning up the water on some First Nations reserves. I think he's mm-hmm. talked about... Uh, affordable
2: housing affordable
3: housing yeah. that's right yeah and um, Sheer I believe has made a couple of announcements around um, like affordability and, and, and putting money back in people's pockets and, and yeah he at, had
1: his tax cut, um, tax cut right. universal tax cut for income taxes on the lowest tax bracket he's announced some additional tax credits for various targeted groups so I think there have been some policy announcements from two of the parties again with the liberals I think it has been a little policy light Uh, But is this then an indication of the media sensationalizing some of the non-election issues and policy issues in favor of things that are going to get clicks?
3: Could be. I mean, I I think that the media – in my opinion, the media covers what we want them to cover, really. You know, you can sort of say, oh, well, you know, the the media – should be focusing on more substantive issues or not but like you say yeah whether it's clicks or 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 ratings or whatever people are people love to look at the the personality stuff and and talk about that and think about that so that's but this election has gone so much into like you said natalie uh just coverage of like almost the personalities of these two guys i've heard so many people talk about uh sheer's personality uh maybe in kind of a negative way just that he's a bit boring you know I, i've heard a lot of people say that about him during this election campaign and then trudeau is just a very very um i'm not sure flamboyant is the word or performer but he just he just loves to um he just loves to kind of get out there and 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 bounce around and and uh uh make a bit, bit of a production about what he's doing. And I think that that kind of seems to overpower, uh, in a lot of ways, uh, the substantive policy parts of the campaign.
1: Well, what I think will be interesting going forward now is now that the nomination deadline has passed and mm-hmm. and parties can't replace candidates... I think we're going to see even more of this dirty politics, more oppo coming out, because parties now can't replace them if something bad comes out about them. I was actually surprised to see how much oppo was released before the nomination deadline. I think generally you see more policy in that first half and then the negative oppo politics kind of in that second half after the candidate nomination deadline passes. So if this has been the theme so far of the federal election, I can only imagine it's Mm -hmm. going to get worse from here.
3: Interestingly, I, I was thinking about that exact point when the whole blackface thing came out, and I thought, "Man, I don't think I would have done this this early if I was uh, if I was a conservative." But I'm not sure that they that they did. Like, do you know anything about that?
1: I've heard some rumors that it, the conservatives had really nothing to do with it. Like, I think it actually had to get passed to U.S. media in order to to bypass some Canadian legal issues, and I think a lot of the parties mm-hmm. just didn't want to touch it or didn't want the risk of touching it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I. From what I understand, the, the man that leaked it actually went directly to the U.S. media anyways. Huh. So that was quite surprising to me as well. So I would actually say that the biggest discussion we've had so far in this federal election hasn't even been from an oppo file done by an opposition party. It's been someone's personal vendetta, maybe.
2: Hmm. What I find most interesting about that is, is we have, I mean, about this campaign, I mean, about about blackface, about the Andrew Scheer not com- Andrew Shear not com- not completing his insurance broker program, uh, the questions about his university credentials from the University of Regina is we, we have such a leader-focused politics in this country anyway, like not just the election. I mean, the, in, in the elections, it's very focused on the leaders. It's very focused on the parties. But why is this stuff all coming out now? I mean... Justin Trudeau has been Prime Minister for four years he's been leader of the Liberal Party for a few years longer than that Uh, Andrew Scheer has been leader of the Conservative Party of Canada for the past two years and he was involved he was he's been in politics since he was in his mid 20s like no did it it, it concerns me that no one has ever bothered to check these things I'm talking about the mainstream media and maybe it's it's a case of resources dwindling resources in, in the in the in the the newsroom in newsrooms and and maybe it's uh it's a case of of reporters simply just chasing this to more focus on chasing the story of the day uh but it it seems a little concerning that there doesn't have been uh, up until now there doesn't appear to have been like real a real look into the backgrounds of who these people are i'm not talking like nefarious but but just like yeah i mean andrew Shear wasn't actually an insurance broker he would worked in the insurance industry, but he called himself an insurance broker in his official bio and a number of times um, uh, in in speeches. Um, the Justin Trudeau blackface, the photos that came out—I mean, the photos—and then the video, and then the you know that he that he'd done it more than once. Um, it turns out it's a bit of a hobby. Yeah, so <laughs> so, but but like I mean, I'm I'm sure there have been books written about Justin Trudeau. I'm sure there have been kind of unofficial bios written about well, Justin Trudeau. Like did no one bother to yeah. like the, look in look look yeah. into this?
1: The Opal Research Bureaus of both parties should frankly be quite ashamed. Like I'm surprised that none of this came out, you know, during the Conservative leadership or during the Liberal leadership years ago. If, if there is actual yearbooks of Justin Trudeau in Blackface, like it's it's not like it's been hidden. It, there is published material about that. Yeah, out and how there. many people would have
3: been at that party? Like it, from the pictures, it looked like there was a couple of hundred people at this big ballroom. Like there's a lot of people that would remember that because he was a he was a celebrity then, right? Like he's been famous his whole life. So I'm surprised that nobody was like, "Hey, remember when Justin Trudeau came to that party with that outfit on in the blackface?" Oh yeah, that's in the yearbook. Like I don't, I I can't. The insurance broker thing, I I don't. I'm not as surprised by because I don't. I don't personally think that's that big of a deal. I, I don't know if I'm going to get in trouble for saying that, but like, I don't know. What's an insurance broker versus an insurance agent? I, I don't actually. It's such an
1: Andrew know. Shear level scandal. Yeah, like no, it just, no, no, exactly. It, it, the scandal personifies Andrew Shear as a whole. Like, it's just it's so kind of boring and pretty bland and at the end of the day, pretty harmless. And those are words that you describe Andrew Shear with. And I, I don't know much about the insurance industry, but I think it may be based on each province, the definitions and standards are slightly different. I'm not excusing it. I All I know is he didn't really work outside of politics much in his entire life, which he has admitted to as well. Uh, but it, it's just such an Andrew sheer level scandal and nowhere near the level of dressing in blackface in mm-hmm. your late 20s.
3: Totally. And the, the, um, the, uh, the, the insurance issue uh, with Andrew Shear. it's like he, I think he should have just said early on his political career, like what you just said, Natalie, look, I've kind of been doing this my whole life. Like it, I saw in one of the um, newspaper columns, I'm not sure who it was, one of the columnists wrote, this is starting to sound more like a summer job. And yeah. I think it is. It was a summer job. Like he, was a, he was a young guy. He was in school. Really, what he wanted to be was a politician. He wanted to be a member of Parliament, and he became one at a very young age. And that's really what he knows how to do. And and I don't even know that there's anything wrong with that. Like to to be a professional politician, understand, uh, you know, how to build constituency and how to raise money and and how to shape policy and communications. Like those are actually skills that are pretty hard skills to know. And so if that's what he wants to do for a profession, I think he should have just been honest about that and said, Yeah, this is this is kind of what I do. I'm a politician. Hi.
2: Yeah, I think it was the tendency of. I mean, I don't want to say just conservative politicians, because I think liberals do this as well and other parties do this as well. But I, there's a tendency among, career I mean, I've, I posted this, something on Twitter about this last week. There's a tendency among conservative or career politicians, I should say, to to kind of lionize the private sector and talk up their private sector experience, even though they might be career politicians, someone like Andrew Scheer. I mean, Jason Kenney is another example, someone who's basically spent his entire career in politics. And... Like own up to it. Like you're a career politician. Um, I don't hear Kenny trying to pretend. No, to no, happen. I don't, I don't, I don't. But I, I don't either. But I'm, I'm talking about just Shear in general. Yeah. yeah.
1: I think there's an issue of relatability, maybe that they're trying yeah. to hit at. I think maybe the perspective they're carrying into that is Canadians are going to relate to us more if they can feel like we've been in their shoes, and so that's where I see Andrew Shear saying, you know, like, yeah, I worked in insurance, coming from. Even if it was for such a short period of time, I think he's trying to say, like, look, I haven't just been an MP since I was in my mid-20s. Like, I've lived and worked just like you do. And I think that's him trying to juxtapose himself to Justin Trudeau, who grew up in this life of privilege and was a drama teacher. And Andrew Shear is trying to position himself as more serious. If we had maybe had a different liberal leader and a different prime minister at the time, Andrew Shear won the leadership races of the Conservative Party, maybe he would have positioned his past career and life a little bit differently. Trudeau's had
3: real jobs, though. You know, people make fun of him. Oh, let's make him a drama teacher again. You hear people say that, but like, but he was. I mean, he's a teacher. He he must have the, the whatever certification you need to be to become a teacher, and I, and I think he'd had...
2: It was more than a summer job. It was more than a summer job. You actually get the summers off. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is a leader focus campaign. We've talked about There's been a lot of talk about the leaders. What are we missing in this election?
1: We're missing a lot about Jagmeet Singh. Okay. I think I didn't really notice him until Friday when he made his announcement about clean drinking water on First Nations reserves. And that was the Jagmeet Singh that we sometimes see that just shines and comes out of nowhere. And he had this great quote uh, in response to a reporter's question about, well, this is going to cost a lot. How are you going to pay for it? And his response was just amazing. He basically said, you know, if this was a drinking water problem in Edmonton or Toronto mm-hmm. or Montreal, would you even be asking me how much it costs? Like no one would question the government spending money on clean drinking water in a major city. Why are you questioning it on reserve land? And that's the Jagmeet thing I've been waiting for for years now. We see Little spurts of it sometimes, but it hasn't been a consistent presence. And this is the jagmeet sing that the NDP needs if they are going to have electoral success this year.
2: And I think I think the NDP have actually uh, different uh, different than previous elections. I'm talking about 2015, where the, where the NDP went fa- fairly hard centrist, I would say, and and really tried to capture that liberal vote unsuccessfully. Um, I think they've actually come out with a pretty progressive platform, talking about. Affordable housing. They made a big affordable housing pledge. They've talked about exactly tr- clean drinking water in First Nations communities. They've talked about uh, pharma care. Um, they've come out with an environmental plan, um, but but they don't I mean they don't seem to be getting the the kind of traction on the on the leadership issue. And you do see those those moments where Jagmeet Singh does kind of pop up and get attention, um, not always for uh, under the best circumstances though. I mean, I'm thinking about the. Situation in Montreal the other day where there there was an elderly white man who came and asked him to take his turban off. Oh, no, cut his turban cut off. Cut his turban off. Yeah, yeah. Which is, I mean, a disgusting and horrible thing to say.
1: So what really bothered me about that whole incident is when people start praising Jagmeet Singh for how composed and how polite he was. Because when I look at that situation and living from my own experiences and my friends' experiences, we're, we're like, this is real life. Like, this is everyday life for us in Canada and we can't afford to react every time we hear something racist and the conversation shouldn't be wow he was so compo- composed and and so polite to this racist guy it should be why is this so normal for Jagmeet Singh yeah. why is it why is it so easy for him to just brush it off and be polite and there's a larger conversation that needs to happen from this because of the scandals that have happened between this one and the brownface, blackface, scandal, a lot of Canadians seem to think that this election has now become about race. And that's not the case. Race issues have always existed in Canada. They're only now just coming forward because we've seen a couple high profile incidents. But I think what's happening now is, especially with Jagmeet Singh being the leader of a major political party, we're maybe starting to see it at a grander, more public scale. But to someone like me or my friends who wear turbans or headscarves, this is just life in Canada.
3: In terms of, Dave, what do I think that the campaign, what's missing in this campaign? um, I I think Jake McSing is certainly a a graceful and uh, and incompetent politician. I don't. I'm not that interested in him just because he's the leader of the third party and there's two other people who may become prime minister. And uh, unfortunately for him, he's not really in that in that group right now. This time around Um, could be different next time. So I'm interested in the the two major parties and I would love to see both of them really present a vision for what does Canada's um, future look like over the next 25 years. We're, We're sitting at a time in the world where energy transition is becoming a reality, uh, where where action on climate change uh, must take place, and and a, a global consensus is forming around that, uh, we're we're sitting at a time when when the United States is probably less stable than it's been in a long time. Uh, growth has been stagnant for a long time, particularly out here in Alberta. So, like I'm sitting here going okay, what does Alberta's economy look like in the next 25 years? And I'm sure you could ask the same question across Canada. How do we fit into the world? How does the world view us? And how do we make sure that we continue to have growth and prosperity and uh, a lifestyle that, that that's one of the best in the world? And I haven't heard anybody talking about that. And that, that to me, that's kind of my... That's, that's the bit that if, I think if, if one of these guys, if, if Sheer or Trudeau could really have a moment and explain how they can get Canada uh, to have a, 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 just as good of a 21st century as it had a 20th, uh, we wouldn't even have to, the election would be over, but, but we, we just haven't gone there at all. And so I really wish that we would have been able to have um, kind of a more thoughtful and serious conversation around around those issues. And I mean, there's three weeks left, who knows? But I think I'm you not hit the nail on the
1: head there. Like it's, it's we're in a time of vast political and economic uncertainty that really hasn't been seen in at least my generation or for a number of decades, but between uh, the uncertainty with the US government, with Brexit, with the rise of populism around the world, with an impending recession potentially coming in 2020, I want to look for a leader that's going to be able to carry Canada through those things as a global leader, as one of the best economies in the world, and how Canada can come through successful on the other end dealing with all of these uncertainties around the world that we can't control. That's what I'd love to hear about, too.
3: And, and I'd love to hear about what are we going to do about investment? Like, if you if you open up the newspaper these days, you hear uh, that there was a, there was an article I read yesterday. Uh, I think it was Chris Varko's column, I think. I, I hope I didn't get that wrong. Um, talking about a bunch of oil patch CEOs sort of saying, like, we need to make sure that there's going to be investment in the future. And, that, and, th- and what I mean by that is, is, like, there's a ton of money in the world. There is a ton of capital in the world. And it's got to go to places where there can be a return. And so if we're not a place where there can be a return that's, you know, a, a little bit better than what you're going to get at the bank, um, we're just not going to be in the conversation in, ter- in terms of, our, of, of economic development and employment and all the things that make a, make a place work. And so I, I would love to hear one of these guys talk about how we're going to make sure that we can continue to get investment into Canada.
2: So shifting focus a little bit um, to Alberta in this, in this federal election. What do you guys see happening? I mean, do you see is- these issues resonating with Albertans? What, and how do you think it, it's impacting the local campaigns? And, and I'm talking local campaigns. I mean, we could talk about province-wide, but really there's only maybe a little handful of races in this province that are actually would actually be considered competitive this election because the conservatives have such a strong... Uh, strong hold on this province right now.
3: Yeah, I mean we've all seen those polls, Dave. I think um, you posted one the other day where it showed the thirty-four blues and then yeah. zero projections. Zero. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I think that that's likely the scenario. To be honest, uh, I, I I think that last time around, you know, you can only do what you can do on the ground. You know, you, you know people. In politics, love to say, go knock doors. Absolutely, go knock doors. It's a great thing to do. Uh, 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 natalie has got the shirt on. Yeah, the Madam premier shirt on. Go <laughs> knock <laughs> doors, and, and and they do need to. But really, but it, so much of this stuff does happen at a higher at the at the especially in a national campaign at a higher level. And, and I remember last time around, particularly I follow Edmonton Centre because that's where I live. Um, we were getting the returns off of uh, New Brunswick or, you know, where it first starts coming, and the Liberals were way above, like, mm-hmm. where, where even the polls thought they were going to be. And I just knew right then, I'm like, oh, the Liberals just want Edmonton Centre. And and it was true. They did, right? And so I think it's the same kind of thing where if we see some of those Eastern results coming in and, uh, and, and the Tories are, are in good shape, probably – That's the story here in Alberta. I I, I mean, I don't mean to be negative on what the impact of the local campaigns can do. And obviously, they can maybe move it a little bit. But um, I'd be surprised if there's going to be much of a divergence between what we see nationally and what we see here in terms of how much the the, the parties relatively move compared to each other. That's, that's what I think.
1: Unless a local campaign actually creates a, a scandal on their own, they're really at the mercy of the direction that the national campaign takes them. Mm-hmm. And the role of the local campaign is to essentially just get out the vote that the national campaign has created for them. So I think the local campaigns are important in the sense of if. They're not doing anything. They're not getting out that vote potential. But HQ generally, in in most cases, directs the the policy that's going to be put forward, the direction that candidate can take in a lot of different ways or in most ways. But we are going to end up seeing uh, on the ground, it ends up being who had the best volunteer team, who had the best campaign manager or get out the vote strategy or voter identification strategy over the last year, rather than policy or anything like that. In terms of what Albertans are going to want to see, I think that the the shape of the economy is really going to impact the political future in Alberta for conservatives. Alberta has gone through an unprecedented recession in the past few years, and people have had their livelihoods significantly slashed from, you know, at the peak of when oil and gas was booming. And maybe compared to the rest of Canada, Albertans are still doing fairly well, but relatively... Albertans feel like they're struggling and I think that's understandable given where we were in the past few years. And so I think the strongest or the biggest struggle for conservatives going forward especially in Alberta is unless the economy starts to pick up when they're in power whether provincially or federally Albertans are going to expect to see some improvement and if conservatives can't deliver on that whether it's their their fault or not Albertans are then going to react accordingly at the polls.
3: Mm-hmm. Interestingly, I think that the uh, the Trans Mountain Pipeline is always, you know, uh, the specter that's uh, mm. that's weighing over a lot of political conversation in Alberta. And uh, when you talk to liberals, they'll say. What more do you people want? We bought the pipeline. Like, come on. (laughs) But then, but then you talk to people uh, here in Alberta, and they're like, "Yeah, but you didn't really mean it." (laughs) Yeah, you know. I feel like there's there's almost a feeling in Alberta, like, you know what? These guys, at the end of the day, they do want to shut down. And I'm talking with the Liberals; they do want to shut down the oil and gas industry at a certain point. They want to phase it out. And and, and Trudeau has said stuff like that by accident a few times. Butts has sort of said stuff like that, uh, I think, uh, a few times on, on social media or, or, in, or in different rooms. And so people, I think, in Alberta sort of feel like, well, these guys, at the end of the day, don't really have the back of the oil and gas industry. I'm not saying that that's my point of view, but I, but I do feel like that's kind of the sentiment that's out there. And, and then the liberals are exasperated, going, my goodness, like we spent $4.5 we're trying to get this thing approved, you know, so he's been doing everything he possibly can with all the, the different consultation requirements to try and make sure that this thing happens. And so there's just um, – but I just feel like Albertans just aren't buying
2: it. They're just like, no, guys, sorry. Yeah, the, the pipeline is – it's it's such a symbol at this point. Like, it's, it's not even the – the construction of the Trans Mountain Pipeline is not going to solve Alberta's economic woes, sure. whether when it's when it's built. Sure. Um, I mean, we are totally at the mercy of the international price of oil. Sure, the pipeline will get will allow companies to pump out more oil more easily to British Columbia uh, when it's when it's expanded, but. It, that's so much of the last boom in Alberta was really a construction boom. And unless the price of oil goes back up again, I just, you know, it's going to be difficult to kind of to re to recreate that. Yeah. I would just push back a little bit though, Dave, and say it's, it's also the differential, right? Because people say there's, there's
3: Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. And so if we can, if we can um, reduce the differential between the, the discount that we get, that that's one of the other reasons that people want to see the pipeline, not just to get more of it out.
2: So do you think that the, the, if the federal court of appeal hadn't, Stalled the construction or the expansion of the pipeline of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. If the federal government hadn't purchased the pipeline, if, if Kinder Morgan had continued um, uh, with construction of the, of the Trans Mountain Pipeline, do you think the Liberals' chances in Alberta? Do you think Randy Boissonneau and Amherstie Sohi, their political chances would have would have improved? So or do, you, this, really, do in, you really think it would have made a difference in this
3: universe? Kinder Morgan still owns it, and it's being built.
2: Sure, or 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 just in general, if it's being built. No, so. I don't think so any direction
1: to to... the Liberals took on that that file would have made a difference for them electorally in Alberta. I'm actually surprised that they ended up going through the purchase of the pipeline because of Lower Mainland BC and Quebec, and those are areas where the Liberals needed to pick up seats if they were going to hold on to a majority government. And they, I, no one would ever say that Alberta is going to go liberal. The fact that we had four liberal seats in the 2015 election was a bit of an anomaly and probably will never happen again, this election at least. And so I don't think there were any seats for for the liberals to pick up in Alberta. And they just basically opened themselves up to losing seats in voter-rich areas that they needed to win.
2: Because uh, like the, the on, on the like the pipeline issue, I, I heard a lot going into the provincial, ahead of the provincial election earlier earlier this year in Alberta, that the NDP believe there was a path to victory for them if they could just get this pipeline built. I and mean, we heard so much commentary about if the pipeline gets built Rachel Notley could get reelected. I never thought that there were I mean first of all I never I I I had a hard time believing there was a path to victory for the NDP in that election anyway because just because of of the way the parties were with the with the merger of or the creation of the UCP with the changing of the electoral boundaries the math just didn't really add up. But I don't I don't even I don't really think that that the construction of the pipeline would have helped or would, would have led help the NDP for, get get reelected in the spring either. And I don't think it would really it's really going to make a huge would have made a huge difference for the liberals here. I mean, sure, it might have swung a couple votes, but I think that the partisan divide is so deep, especially on this issue that that I'm not sure you can you can convince many voters who who believe the liberals want to shut down the the oil industry, who believe they're they, you know, they spent four point five billion dollars on this pipeline, but they didn't really mean it. Like, I, I think that people who believe that, like, you're going to have a hard time convincing them that uh, that actually Justin Trudeau, uh, even though he has spent a lot of political capital on this issue, something that that, you know, I'm sure he had there were a lot of advisors and a lot of MPs from other parts of Canada arguing against. Um, They did see it as something that needed to go through a piece of national infrastructure, whether you agree with it or not. Um, But there's like absolutely almost no payoff for him on on this.
1: Yeah, I agree with you, Dave.
2: But Dave, it's nice to
3: imagine a government in in, in some world where you would do things that are in the national interest, not in your own uh, partisan interest. And you wouldn't worry about, Okay, well, am I going to lose seats here or there,
1: right? (laughs) I'm too cynical, I guess, for that that (laughs) point of view in politics. But I, I think that, especially in Alberta and Western Canada, there has been a lot of uh, Western alienation sentiment that still exists. There's been a deep history of that. And frankly, the first Prime Minister Trudeau did not help with that. And I think it's too easy to remember those that history now with our current Prime Minister. And and so I think it'll be many generations before, if anything, Alberta or Western Canada steps away from that conservative identity and, and maybe become something else. Maybe they don't. But for the time being... It, it, they're they're that that western alienation is still going to exist for a while
0: the dave Berta podcast is brought to you by Litfest, canada's original nonfiction festival which runs from october 17th to 27th right here in edmonton it takes place at venues across the city which will play host to authors and presenters from home and afar giving their perspectives on topics like true crime historic mysteries gender identity mental health Food culture, and many topics in between. You can see the full list of presenters at LitFestAlberta.org, But let me uh let me tune you to a particular uh Litfest presentation you're gonna want to go to after you vote on election day on Monday, October twenty first. You're wanna you're gonna wanna get down to Metro Cinema at 8712 109th Street between six and eight PM because Dave Cornway the host of the Dave Berta podcast will also be hosting an election night panel. And it's called Election Night Can't We Get Along? It includes panelists Humble the Poet, Kai Shang Tom, Ayelet Sabari, and Amy McKay. You don't want to miss it. Maybe maybe we can't all get along, but there's only one way for you to find out, and that's to go to that panel on October 21st. Get your tickets at litfestalberta.org. Unfortunately, festival passes are sold out, but you can still get tickets to individual events. And if you use the offer code APNROCKS19, you'll get five bucks off your ticket. So get yours at litfestalberta.org. The Dave Berta Podcast is also brought to you by the Common Ground Podcast. It's a five-part series exploring narratives of hate and counter-hate in Alberta. Created by Ifran Chowdhury, the Director of the Office of Human Rights, Diversity, and Equity at McEwen University, in collaboration with Iman Bukhari from the Canadian Cultural Mosaic Foundation in Calgary. It was prompted by the rise in police-reported hate crimes in Alberta and a desire to examine what can be done to improve the way that we look each other. Find the podcast at mcewen.ca slash O-H-R-D-E, that stands for the Office of Human Rights Diversity and Equity, or search for Common Grounds Podcast in the podcatcher of your choice. That's the Common Ground Podcast, a five-part series exploring narratives of hate and counter hate in Alberta.
2: The Alberta Legislature is returning early this year. It was first uh, the legislature was first scheduled to return I think on October 22nd, which was the day after the federal election is is being held. But uh, it was announced a few weeks ago that the ledge will return early. October 8th, MLAs will return to Edmonton, whether they like it or not, uh, to uh, to implement the UCP's legislative agenda this fall. So, guys, what uh, what do you think we should expect on uh, on October eighth when uh, when MLA's return? That's this Tuesday. It's coming up quick. It's really soon. Yeah, oh,
1: these poor staffers. Uh, you know, the UCP did win with an astounding majority. They did ultimately earn the right to govern, and they put forward a fairly significant election platform and and list of priorities during the campaign. So, it, in my opinion, I think we're going to see them knocking off things from that list. They were pretty ambitious in what they wanted to achieve. So it's not surprising to me that they've decided to come back early. They did an extensive number of of sittings uh, throughout the summer. Uh, Kenny himself is a workhorse. None of this surprises me that they actually want to come back early because he has an ambitious list of things he wants to accomplish in his term.
3: What are we going to talk about, Dave? I think we're going to talk about one thing, money and how come there's not enough of it. Uh, You know, the the whole... Election campaign basically was Kenny sort of saying, "Look at it, the deficits are out of control. The NDP can't be trusted with the purse strings." And, and and the NDP saying, "Yeah, but we need to spend it on all these programs." And Kenny won. So I, I think we're going to see uh, the budget on the 24th of October. That's that's um, pretty tough on on in a lot of ways, in, in terms of the cuts that are going to need to be made in order to get the the budget um, closer, or or I guess to reduce the size of the deficit with. Uh, the eventual goal of of trying to get back in balance within a few years. And so I think that's going to be the all-consuming thing with the NDP uh, on the other side saying, no, we need all that stuff. And Kenny saying, too bad, can't afford it. And go from
0: there.
1: Yeah, in hindsight, when I think about the provincial election, it was really a battle between one side saying we have a spending problem and one side saying we have a revenue problem. And we have a spending problem, one. And so I think the budget we're going to see will will indicate that. We are going to see a number of cuts there. They have said they're not going to increase taxes. And the Kenny government is going to argue that the cuts that they're making are going to help stimulate the economy and grow the revenue base on a more organic and natural front because they're going to stimulate the economy rather than raising taxes and, and increasing the revenue base that way to
3: me also it really harkens back to uh, when klein first got in right was it ninety five I don't know, Dave, you Not, know.
2: uh he he became premier in ninety two and then ninety three won the election okay Tories won the election yeah
3: but there was a there was a there was a major round of cuts that got made yeah uh, in the
2: N- ninety four budget ninety four started
3: okay yeah. yeah and and i I remember at that time I was uh, like my dad was a was a professor at the University of Calgary, and so was was a, a not a civil servant, but was a publicly paid employee, mm-hmm. and got a five percent pay reduction. And our family really felt that like it 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 it, it matters, right? Like it, it, especially if you don't, you know, if you're kind of living right on the edge, anyways, and then you get five percent knocked back when you're used to getting a, a little bit of a raise every year. That's really tough for people. So, I, but at the end of the day, I I don't think that the government of the time felt that any of that was a mistake. They were like, you know, we need to get the books in order. And they did. And and, and so I think we're gonna see something similar to that take place now. Uh, if you if you talk to people that were around in the in the PC party that time, one of the things they used to say to each other was, Don't blink. Like don't blink. You can you can handle this there's going to be people screaming and yelling. There's
2: I think I think that's what Jason Kenny as a, as spokesperson for the Alberta Taxpayers Association actually said. Was it, really? Back in, in yeah. early 90s, yeah. Well, I'm sure
3: he didn't forget it, right? So I think there's going to be that sort of don't blink attitude uh, that we'll probably see from the government. I think we'll see a lot of of, uh, of 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 gnashing of teeth and pulling of hair from the opposition and from and from protest groups and other people. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think the government feels very confident in the mandate that it won and Kenny clearly knows what he wants to do. I mean, he's 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 a, he's excellent at planning and then executing. And so I think the next step of this is is a is a tough budget.
2: Yeah, and there's certainly still the UCP is certainly still in their honeymoon period right now. I mean, I think that's the the question is when is when is that going to end? And I think that a, a provincial budget filled with with cuts to public services whether that's included in the budget this fall or whether it's it's heavy loaded in the budget in the spring. I mean, that's the question is they've talked about balancing the budget I think by 2023. Uh, there, you know, the question is what's going to be included in which budget? Because I don't think they're going to do everything overnight. They have a four-year term. I think that that will we will see a lot of it implemented in the fall and a lot of it implemented in the spring. Um, but uh, but they do have a number of years to to implement sure. implement their agenda. Uh, and I mean, as Natalie said, they do. You know, it was a it was a uh, a very detailed uh, platform that the UCP ran on. We know what they want to do. There was no real nuance to it. Um, what I think is interesting comparing, what what I think one of the interesting differences between um, the Alberta legislature in 2019 and the Alberta legislature in 1993, when Klein moved in and implemented his cuts, is that in 2019, we have an opposition party, a sizable opposition party that is opposed to these types of cuts, That is a, that is opposed to these types of cuts to public services and public spending. Whereas are you contrasting in, with the decor liberals? With the decor liberals, yeah. who basically campaigned on a platform to, in in 1993, a, a platform to do a lot of what Ralph Klein and the Tories did. Maybe maybe they would have done it differently, but they had the same agenda. They wanted to cut the deficit. They wanted to cut the eliminate the debt, and that was kind of their two. They they had very similar platforms, and the and the NDP were wiped out in the 1993 election. Um, so I think that that will be a big difference. You'll see actually see a uh, actually see argument across the aisle on this. Um,
1: I don't think there's anything inherently wrong, though, with, with campaigning on cuts to the provincial budget. Uh, if we look at an area like healthcare, Alberta does spend more per capita than any other jurisdiction in this country for outcomes that are not significantly better. And And so I think there is a very strong argument for looking at ways where we can reduce spending in this province to be at a level more comparable to, say, British Columbia or other provinces and get similar outcomes. I just don't want that to come at you know the the detriment or to impact other people negatively but i think there is always room for improvement in efficiencies and there's nothing wrong with that i
3: agree i agree that there's always room for efficiency and innovation and it's a it's a goal that every government should have but but i do i do remember my own experience as a kid you know with with a 5% cut obviously our family made it it was fine but it it you can't cut all the money that they want to cut, and just say we're going to do it out of innovation and efficiency. There's going to be some real pain for people, and that's going to be some probably some job losses. That's going to be probably some people that aren't earning the, the money that they were hoping to earn. Like there's there's it's it's got to come from somewhere, you know. And, and so I think it'll be it'll be interesting to see where where some of those uh, where some of those cuts are made, and how much can the government protect people and families from feeling some of the pain while at the same time trying to achieve their budget objectives. It's a hard problem. It's not an easy thing to do.
2: Yeah. I mean, I've been clear on, in, on, on this podcast before. I mean, I think that looking only, you're not going to solve Alberta's fiscal situation or, or fiscal challenges if you only look at one side of, one side of the coin. And, and the NDP talked a lot about revenue, um, but I don't actually think did what they needed to do to actually solve Alberta's revenue problems. And the UCP, through the McKinnon Report Act, basically only looked at looked at spending. They said this is a spend, Janice McKinnon repeated the talking point again and again, that Alberta has a spending problem, not a revenue problem. And you know, you could argue that Alberta has kind of both. I, I, I don't think until we figure out how to not rely as heavily on oil and gas royalties as we, as we do, as, as the government does, um, I don't think we're actually going to solve that problem, and I don't really see I mean I see obviously I think the UCP is going to do everything they can to balance the budget, whether it's for for the better or, f- or for the worse. Um, but I don't see the long term solutions being proposed here you
3: know dave i I actually wonder if the government's not going to come to that conclusion also in a maybe in a couple of years and say, because you can always change your mind, right say, oh, yeah, we thought we were just going to do it through cuts, uh, but you know we've cut as hard as we can. Uh, it turns out there's still not enough money, or we're still in a in a deficit position, and now we are looking at new streams of revenue. I I I'm not saying, just to be clear, I'm not saying that's what I think that they're going to do, but I could see a scenario where that happens, where they realize, geez, you know what, uh, if we if we if we had a bit more coming in. Then maybe this wouldn't be so hard. I'm I'm interested to see whether Kenny gets there in a few years, or if he stays really really committed to only working on the one side of the balance sheet, or,
2: or whether he'll be prime minister by that point, <laughs> or back back in Ottawa. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> so one one of the interesting things that came up this week that will definitely be a hot topic of conversation when the legislature returns on Tuesday is the independent in, art. are the in, independent investigations into Alberta's energy regulator? which have revealed inappropriate spending of $2.3 million in funds over the past year. Uh, and the investigations uh, focused on CEO Jim Ellis uh, with a number of allegations of, of misspending and uh, and uh, use of funds. How do you think this will play in the first, uh, first week or the first couple of weeks of the session? Because the government had already, Sonia Savage, the energy minister, had already announced that the government was reviewing the Alberta energy regulator. Um, So that was already underway. Uh, I mean, personally, I think that this will my my prediction is, is this this these reports that have come out, these investigations that have come out will basically um, uh, solidify what the government is probably already planning on doing what the UCP is already planning on doing with the AER. I think it's one of those weird
3: issues that like most people don't know what the AER is. They certainly, you know, Jim Ellis was not a household mm-hmm. name, but then this thing breaks uh, the other day and, and I was reading it, trying to figure this out. Cause at first it said, oh, it was 2.3 million of inappropriate spending. And I'm like, my God, like, did this guy steal all this money? It doesn't sound like he did. Mm-hmm. What it sounds like to me from just reading the news coverage and nothing, I didn't read the reports was uh, he sort of set up a consulting arm within the AER where they were going to go out and consult in different places and talk about how to regulate energy in different jurisdictions which isn't really what they're supposed to be doing but okay but then he was a bit sneaky about it and and there was there was they, they tried to hide what they were doing using text messages rather than email quite a bit and then lost a bunch of money because it turns out uh, a consulting company is actually a hard thing to run and it, it wasn't like the the cash just started flowing in so i think the 2.3 million is just uh Basically, losses of, on the consulting company side that were sort of subsidized by the regulator, which is not what the regulator's money is for. But the the, the reason, and, and that's all kind of, uh, who knows, I don't know. I guess they'll have to figure out what happens to that, to that guy. But I think the UCP is going to use this thing constantly. Every time the NDP pipes up and says, oh, you know, uh, you guys don't know what you're doing. You did a bad job on this. They're going to be like, oh, yeah? Remember... When you guys were in charge of the regulator <laughs> and, and no one checked if the guy had set up a consulting company and was texting everyone. Like, I, I just think it's going to be one of, the, cause I don't think the, the UCP has a whole bunch of really good weapons to whack the NDP with. And so they, they just got this one right before session. I bet you we're going to hear about this all the time during session. Uh, you know, Poor Jim Ellis is probably going to find his name in the newspaper a little bit more than he was hoping to over the, the next few months. The, this
2: is on the list on the top of Jason Nixon's talking points <laughs> you for, got for, for you got session it. this year. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I think that this issue is going to be lost on a lot of Albertans beyond just, oh my gosh, they spent like $2.3 million and that are, they weren't supposed to and they're out of pocket by that amount. Like I think that amount is very tangible to the average Albertan. It's not something like in the billions of dollars that you can't imagine, mm-hmm. but everyone can imagine what $2.3 million is or what they could potentially do with it. And there's this quote from the Auditor General report that says, AER engaged in activities outside of its mandate and public money was spent inappropriately. That's going to be something that the UCP definitely capitalizes on. There's also quotes saying that the, there was no appropriate oversight by the board. There was no processes in place to make sure that the the regulator was was actually in check and spending appropriately. And I think the UCP is going to use that to really clean house in a lot of public agencies and boards. And I mean, they've already done that Mm -hmm. in one step. But I think this just furthers that argument of, well, look, like the people that the NDP appointed to these boards were ineffective for oversight purposes. Um, It makes sense that we have now cleaned house on all the boards and are refreshing. And this maybe justifies the UCP's big sweep of a lot of those public agencies and boards a few months ago.
2: One, one of the things that I think also will be a big uh, uh, contributor to what the tone in this legislative session will be uh, is the results of the federal election. Uh, if Andrew Scheer and the Conservatives win, I expect the UCP to be buoyant, to be uh, uh, talking about that a lot. Um, if the Liberals and just Justin Trudeau form a government, whether it's a majority or a minority situation, I think that will definitely shape how, uh, I mean, it should definitely shape Alberta politics over the next, I mean, over the next few years, but over the next few months in particular with this session. Do you think it's a coincidence
3: that the budget's coming right after the federal election? Like, is there, you know what I mean? Like, are, are they, try, were they purposely trying to not interfere with the federal election by doing that or is that just the timing of it and that's kind of how it worked?
2: Well, I think the federal, the budget was always planned to come out after the federal election because initially, as I said earlier, they, they had planned to return to the legislative session on october 22nd which is the day after the federal oh, okay. election so i think they'd always plan to but yeah i mean i think that there is a I, I think it it probably would not it probably wouldn't help the federal conservatives right. if the ucp comes out with an austerity budget right. before for the two, federal d- two days before the vote or something like that yeah right? it's just easier to pop it back a little bit yeah, yeah.
3: and yeah. so
1: because we see kenny actually stumping for the federal conservatives like yeah like they would never have released a budget that would potentially impact the federal election or or the voters' impression of conservatives. Because I think the average voter doesn't actually differentiate between provincial conservatives mm-hmm. and federal conservatives. Yeah. They're just conservatives. They're all one team. They're all the PCs, regardless of you know, the fact that PCs don't really exist anymore on, on either federal or provincial politics. And Kenny, being a very smart political operator, knows this. He knows that it will be detrimental and there's no upside to releasing a budget before the federal election and knows that he doesn't really need to anyways.
2: So speaking of Kenny, he's spending this weekend in Ontario campaigning with federal conservative candidates. I think he had something like 17 or 18 campaign stops uh, packed in from Friday night starting in Ottawa. And uh, I think he's in the today and Sunday. He was in the uh, um, uh, Brampton kind of Mississauga area. What do you guys think about this, about Jason Kenney going to Ontario to campaign for for the federal conservatives?
1: It's really smart. It's not unheard of. It's uh, a former federal minister who was very popular in in those communities, Ontario, that he's actually visiting, uh, campaigning for someone that he aligns with very closely um, at the federal level. And... We have to remember that Kenny was a federal minister for a very long time. He was minister of multiculturalism. He did spend a lot of time across the country, not just in Ottawa and in his own riding in Calgary. And so I think if we think about the the conservative politicians that exist right now, he is the most recognizable. He is the one that has probably the strongest connections across the country despite him being the Alberta premier right now. And so the fact that Andrew Scheer and the federal conservatives are taking advantage of this should not be surprising to anyone. I, if it were me, I would say, yeah, use every tool in your toolkit possible. And if we had, you know, if the liberals had that option of having, you know, a, a liberal premier with that same caliber or connections uh, campaign for them, they would take advantage as well as with the NDP. And I don't think anyone should be shamed for that.
3: I mean, it's a big country, and you can only be in one place at once, right? So, for, for I think for sheer, I I totally agree with you. By the way, Natalie, I think that you, it gives sheer kind of a maybe what you call surrogate, you know, to be someplace else, whipping people up, having a rally, getting everybody all fired up. Um, and Natalie, you made a comment earlier uh, on the show here about how the national campaign's job is to kind of win the vote, and then the then the local guys got to get it out. Uh, totally agree with that. And so this is basically a way of exciting people and making people feel connected to the campaign uh come out to a rally see kenny uh get all get all fired up and then hopefully go out and vote for the for the conservatives. so i think it makes tons of sense there's one other part of it that i think is is really important to remember in in a federal election in canada and it's that we are such a regional country you know like when we're walking around every day in alberta you kind of you start thinking oh everybody must think like this and then you realize oh no quebec is like a very very different place ontario's a different place the maritimes pc you know so there's like five or six of these parts of canada that all need to come together and so in ontario there's so many seats uh where you can pretty well you can't win the election but you you can Mm -hmm. almost win the election in ontario and so uh, a guy like kenny that like you said has got great uh, contacts all around the province has been in those 905 ridings like for a decade and a half doing dinners and all the different kinds of things that he's done, having him go out there, I think is a really, um, it's a really important political thing that might be able to help them win a couple of seats in the 905 at the end of the day could, uh, could, could tip the balance of the, of the election.
1: I think there was a tweet that said, yeah, he's doing like 16 or 18 events in the span yeah. of two to three days. And yeah. I don't know a single politician that can work as hard as Jason no. Kenney can. Like he is a powerhouse and he is a workhorse and he does more events in a day than any politician I've ever seen ever in this country, and and so and I doesn't think, mind it, right? And doesn't like mind he'll it. He'll like be he back here next week. He genuinely likes working. it. He yeah.
2: he's a campaign machine. He's a campaign yeah. machine, yeah.
1: and he actually likes doing this, and he's fairly good at it. Like people flock to him, and so it, he is the best tool the conservatives can bring out right now to to drive out that vote to to get people interested in this federal election campaign, because people like us, we've been paying attention since the red dropped, since before the red dropped, but. Now people are only starting to think about, oh, yeah, there's an election coming up. I guess I should, you know, consider voting. Um, like personally, for me, I always vote by special ballot way before advance polls even open up. But most people wait until advance polls or election day to cast their ballot, let alone determine who they're voting for. So now's the time to bring out the big guns and start riling people up and think about the election.
2: Yeah, there was some question earlier in the campaign about because Jason Kenney had previously pledged the UCP to to help, and he pledged his personal support to, to Andrew Scheer to help uh, elect the federal conservatives. Uh, and there was some talk earlier in the campaign about where Jason Kenney was, why he wasn't he out, why wasn't he out campaigning earlier in mm. the, earlier in the uh, in the election period. And I mean, I think that makes sense, is you don't really want to bring out your your heavy guns until you know later when people are paying attention. And I think now was kind of the the, the ideal point for for the uh, for the the federal conservatives to bring him out, I, I think with Jason Kenney he's, I mean he's the premier of Alberta, but we often forget that he's basically a national politician. So even though he's a provincial politician technically, yeah, he's he's the premier of Alberta, leader for provincial Conservative Party. He's, I mean I th- I, th- I think in some ways he's probably more of a leader of the conservative movement in Canada than even someone like Andrew Scheer is, uh, and there's there's no surprise that that a lot of people think that he has ambitions to be prime minister one day to, or to be leader of the federal conservative party at least. Um, so I'm not I'm not surprised to see him go out, and I think we'll see more of this and over over the next few years, especially if there's a minority situation uh, where where the balance of power is is not clear, or if the liberals barely have a, a minority government. I think we'll see Jason Kenney act uh, quite powerful, try to try to act quite powerfully on and take a uh, big presence on on the national stage here in Canada. Um, it some some people were surprised that he went out to Ontario, but I was reminded uh, the other day of. When back at right after he'd become leader of of the United Conservative Party, there was a big blowout around a editorial board meeting that he'd had with the Edmonton Journal or the Calgary Herald. And it was it was the editorial board meeting where he said and he disputed this and and his supporters disputed this. But he said that parents should be notified if their kids join the Gay Straight Alliance. And it was a big, huge issue in Alberta politics Mm. that week. And Kenny basically disappeared off the off the political radar. Like, I think he, I think he just disappeared and, and he was unavailable for comment and, and they tried to, they, I think they tried to make the issue go away, tried to spin it a bit and then he ended up showing up on Twitter at a fundraiser for a federal conservative candidate in Vancouver and like, that's where he popped up hmm. and it would, it just seemed like, yeah, that makes sense. Like, he's out, he, he has places to go if he uh-huh. wants to. He has people who, you know, he, he has currency among federal conservatives across the country uh, and it's kind of a, different politician than we're used to having as Premier of Alberta. We're mm-hmm. used to having I mean, you know, we've we've had federal politicians go into provincial politics. Jim Prentice was briefly Premier of Alberta, but but a lot of our politicians have been very provincial politicians.
1: Well, and Jim Prentice didn't have the federal clout that no, Jason exactly. Kenney does. Yeah. I mean, Jason Kenney was essentially number two behind Stephen Harper for for most of the Conservative parties. He could have been the leader
2: of the Conservative Party if he'd run if for he the federal leadership. If he
1: really wanted leadership. to, he probably yeah. could. But we haven't seen someone with such a federal reputation or or background move into provincial politics, I think, in at least my lifetime. And so I, I'm personally not surprised to see it. I think it's just maybe shocking to a lot of people because it hasn't been seen before. And Kenny was a relatively big deal in the federal scene. And and so, yeah, I would say he he knows people in probably a lot of places in Canada. He probably is a very sought after person. And if he's going to win an ally in the federal government by spending a weekend out in Ontario, I think it's a no-brainer for him.
2: Yeah, and just 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 one final final note on Kenny is: we talked about him being a campaign machine. Uh, we talked about his his presence and his currency in, in national federal conservative circles, and I think that that one of the frustrating things I see, and I think a, a message to be sent to to progressives in Alberta, whether it be New Democrats or progressives who are operating outside of the NDP. Is that while Jason Kenney certainly is not invincible as a politician, he shouldn't be underestimated, and I think that's the over the past two years, past three years, and i've been I've done this before has talked about oh well, he can't do this, and then he comes in and just does it um is that that he is a very different politician and that he shouldn't really be underestimated in terms of 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 what he wants in terms of implementing his political moving ahead and implementing his political agenda so
3: one just a little point on that, Dave. I just when I'm watching Kenny all the time, and it's this has gone back from when he first, uh, you know, ran for the the one party and then combined them. Is this guy is a pro? Like we talked about at the beginning of the show, Andrew Shear being a professional politician. Like Kenny's a, also is a professional politician who's really really good at it too. And whether you agree with the things that he says or the ideas that he wants to get across, he just really understands exactly how all this stuff works. So I think when you see him out doing so, oh, he's in Toronto. He's here and there. He got. I always think, well, he knows what he's doing. Like he's he's there for a reason. Who knows necessarily what it is? But he's just a really, really sophisticated political operator. And I think that that shows up in lots of different ways.
0: All right. So now it's time to open the mailbag. Uh, and we're just going to answer a few questions today. Um, but I guess uh, we've been talking a little bit about federal and provincial politics. Um, and there's a few questions here that I'd like you guys to answer around. Well, Amy Hainsworth has this one. Is Alberta separatism an actual thing or is it just sensationalism?
3: I think it's a real thing. I, I don't think it's a thing that's uh, about to happen tomorrow. Uh, you know, there's all there's constitutional implications. There's, there's all kinds of reasons why it probably would never happen. But I think that you start to see more and more people out here um, just say, look, at, I'm not sure how well this is working for me. And I think that the the pipeline issue is sort of a, a, of a, is a bit of a stand in for that, uh, the the gradual transition away from, from oil and gas really uh, put some pressure on that issue. So I would say if Alberta starts to feel, if Alberta continues to feel more and more isolated from Confederation over the next decade or so, this is something we're gonna talk about quite a bit more.
1: I, I agree, it's absolutely a thing, and it's going to be a thing so long as there are, as you said, many distinct regions of Canada, each with their own priorities and identities. And Canada's really big, and it's really hard for a federal government to represent each of these regions of Canada to the extent that the citizens there are really happy or are satisfied with the job the government's doing and i think again because alberta has felt left behind for so long that these these sentiments of separatism or you know, Ottawa doesn't have our back or nothing new. But as Alberta continues to suffer economically, they're only going to continue to grow and not be a fringe idea anymore, but be something that like very smart, reputable, successful people think might be a valid solution Mm. to Alberta's problems.
3: I think if you go back to uh, maybe 15 years ago or so to the firewall letter, right? Mm -hmm. And that was written by people who are uh, serious academics like uh, Barry Cooper and Reiner Arnoff, Ted Morton, who was our finance minister for a while. Uh, I think Ken Boss and Cool and Harper were, I yeah. believe, the signatories to that thing. And It was kind of a, a step in the direction of separatism. It wasn't, we're going to separate, but it was, yeah, we're going to get a couple of things in place that kind of made us more of our own More autonomy. More autonomy, yeah. right? And and, and I, I could see... Uh, an, a kind of a resurgence of that sort of thing. I wouldn't be surprised to see Firewall Two. You know, uh, mm. I wonder if those guys are still busy. I'm not sure, but uh, you know, it could be. It's a generation ago, but I wouldn't be surprised to see another kind of round of that conversation take place over the next few years here.
2: Yeah, I think. I mean, I think alien Western alienation and, and Alberta. I mean, it's part of Alberta's political psyche. It's always kind of always there at some level, um, whether it's at the forefront or or underneath um underneath what the the main narratives i so i think there's but i think there's a difference between separatism and alienation and i think that right now separatism the the idea of alberta separatism is is very much a fringe idea um i think when when you really really boil it down and you really ask people what they think i think it's a fringe idea i mean i saw i've seen some polls that have said you know maybe perhaps someday in the future if the circumstances were were right would you consider uh perhaps supporting Alberta separatism. Like you really have to torque the question mm-hmm. in order to get like a, a, mm-hmm. a, a high response th- to, for an act to actually get people to right. want to separate from Canada.
3: And to that question, people would say, yeah, sure. Maybe.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, sure. Maybe. Yeah. Um, but yeah, alienation is, is kind of always there. It's always part of Alberta politics.
0: Well, and that brings us to our, our second question in the mailbag this week, our last question uh, for this episode from Phil Zinkin in light of all of, uh, this Western alienation rhetoric, Does Jason Kenney's Ontario campaign blitz help or hinder the federal CPC? And I think my interpretation of the question is like, what's the perception of other Canadians of of Alberta coming in and trying to flex a little bit here? What do you guys think?
2: I don't think people in Ontario are paying attention to what's happening in Alberta. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that... Concert- Speaking of Western alienation. Yeah, well, no, no, but, but I, don't, I don't, you know, I, I, I'm not sure people in Alberta, aside from knowing who Doug Ford is, are really paying attention to what's going on in Ontario either. Um, we are regions um that, yeah, I mean, our pol- politics kind of, our provincial politics do kind of siloize. So, I mean, I agree with what we talked about before about Jason Kenney is, is an asset to the federal conservatives. So I don't think he's going to hurt them.
1: There's a lot to unpack in that question, actually. Like, There's a lot of different components that that are maybe separate and, and shouldn't be all combined in one. The kamikaze campaign and the investigation that's happening right now. I mean, the CBC just did a huge we didn't report even get to talk on about it. That. We didn't get to talk about it. Yeah. It was quite interesting to read, actually. Um, and I mean, I was on the board at that time, so I did not hear about any of those things happening internally in each of the campaigns. So it was kind of an eye opener to read those. I digress. That doesn't. We don't need to go into that right now. But I, I don't know that anyone outside of Alberta who dislikes the UCP is paying attention to that investigation. So no, I don't think that anyone in Ontario even realizes there was a problem or an, uh, an apparent problem with the the nomination or the leadership process. I don't even know that. That will be proven yet. It's all going to come out, I guess, in the next couple of months as this investigation continues. But I would bet a lot of money that most people in Ontario, unless they really, really hate Kenny, don't know what's going on here.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I would just sort of agree with what you guys both said about this thing. I, I think he's going to be talking to conservative partisans when he goes to rallies there, and they're not going to have a problem with uh, with him. They're going to think he's cool. They're going to think, oh, wow, here comes a big star. and <laughs> So I think it'll help. I, I, yeah, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't worry too much about uh, uh, Kenny being uh, radioactive in front of uh, a, a conservative partisans in Ontario. I think it'd be quite the opposite.
0: And that's it for the mailbag this week.
2: Thanks to everyone who sent in questions. And that's it for this episode.
1: Thanks so much for tuning in.
2: Thanks to our producer, Adam Rosenhart, for helping put the show together. And thank you to our two wonderful guests, Natalie Pond and Justin Archer for joining us today. It was really a lot of fun, guys. Uh, and thanks to the Alberta Podcast Network powered by ATB for supporting the show. Send us your feedback or ask us any questions you have for our next episode. Uh, you can get us on Twitter at, at Dave Berta, on Instagram at Dave Berta. Thanks everybody who sent in Instagram questions and Instagram comments uh, or on the Dave Berta Facebook page or you can email us at podcast at Dave Berta.ca. and also... Uh, leave a re- a review for the show if you're um if you are uh, uh, if you are so inclined on Apple or send us a note telling us you like the show. We got a uh, an email this week from after our last episode from someone who listens to our show in Norway. So thank you very much for listening. I should learn how to say thank you in Norwegian. <laughs> That'll be what I say on the next show. And congratulations for your sovereign wealth fund. Yes. <laughs>